the gospel is the greatest message the world has ever known. The gospel meets the greatest need the people of the world have. Despite this, the gospel is often lost, redefined, or replaced in the modern church. When the church loses, replaces, redefines the gospel, Christianity loses its distinctiveness, and it becomes just another religion teaching people how to appease God or how to become better people. When the church loses, replaces, redefines the gospel, it cuts itself off from the power of God necessary to see souls saved and lives changed for the glory of God. And when this happens, the church actually ceases to be a church and it becomes instead a man-made organization built on man-made wisdom and man-made philosophy and is empty of the power and the glory of God. This is why we must be right about the gospel. We must make sure the gospel is our primary message as a church. That's why we must know the gospel. We must be able to articulate it, to explain it, to say this is what the gospel is and something else, this is not the gospel. That's why we're going to do an in-depth study on the gospel. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 15 for the majority of the next several months. Doing a study on the gospel so that we can be sure that we not only have embraced it, but that we know it, that we are committed to it, and we understand its importance. So open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, start in verse 1, it's page 879. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that He was buried, and He rose again on the third day, according to the Scripture, that He was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, and after that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James and all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, the grace of God which was given to me. Therefore, whether it was whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. The title tonight is an overview of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are wonderful and amazing and awesome. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your word that guides us and shows us what is right and true, shows us how to fight against the the fiery darts of the wicked one, that when he comes that we can raise our shield of faith, we can cry out to you, and we know that you hear and care about all that's going on in our lives. We know, Father, it is your intent and your desire for us to experience the fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore at your side. So, Lord, we claim those for ourselves. We pray they would always guide us in our lives, that we would be filled with your joy and we would be able to rejoice in the Lord always. God, tonight as we look at your word, as we look at what the gospel is, to be sure, as a people we know it. While there are many competing messages in this world that would seek to replace the gospel, there are many today that would try to redefine the gospel. And because of it, it's just, it's, it's unpopular. God, it's easy for the gospel to be lost in our culture so that we, because we fear offending people with the words 
and the message that Christ has given to us. But Lord, we don't want to be those people. Help us to stand on the gospel. Help us to trust in the gospel. Help us to be bold proclaimers of the gospel. Take your word tonight and let your Holy Spirit use it to strengthen us, to encourage us, to make us bold for Christ, bold for the gospel, and that we would be laborers that rise up and go out into the harvest of Gaiman. We ask this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. First Corinthians 15 is Paul's defense of the resurrection of the dead. And he starts his defense of the resurrection by reminding Christians or the Corinthians about the gospel. In these first few verses, particularly verses 1 through 4, Paul explains several important facts about the gospel. Um, and, and the main point I want us to understand, it comes from verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. And the way it's worded in the King James, first of all, uh, in the Greek it could also be translated, I delivered unto you that which was of first importance. And what he's saying is the gospel is really kind of the most important thing. And so the main truth is the gospel is and must always remain the primary message of the church. This, is, this has always been the case. The church of Jesus Christ has always had one message, and it is this message of Jesus Christ and of the gospel of Christ. And, and that sounds simple, that the gospel is our primary message, and it is pretty simple. But, again, in our day, there are many churches who have lost and redefined or replaced the gospel into something other than the gospel. And that's something we cannot do, we, we must not do. Now, this passage verse that I read, it gives us four facts about the gospel, and for the next I don't know, eight or ten weeks. I'm not sure how many messages I'm going to have from, all, from it all together. All of them are going to come from these 11 verses and from these four facts broken down into various ways. We have already started this series several weeks ago, and we looked at two important facts that we have to know. The first is the gospel is necessary. But again, Paul says in verse 3, he delivered unto them what was of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. The gospel is the message, it is the thing. We, we talked about that there are differences between different churches. There are things that the Southern Baptists believe that we don't believe. There are things Nazarenes believe that we don't believe. That Pentecostals believe that we don't believe. And the things we disagree on with these groups are not massive issues. They are they're what you would call family discussions. Right? They don't separate us from the church of God to something else. The, and, and it's okay that we have these differences. It's okay that they believe different than us. We don't have to try to convert them to what we believe. They should not try to convert us to what they believe. And it's okay in several things to say, you know what, we, we can agree to disagree. The gospel is not one of those issues. The gospel is not something that we can say, well, you believe that way about this and I'll believe that way and we're both okay. Once we alter the gospel, once we redefine it, we replace it, or we lose it, we lose the power of God unto salvation. Right? You, there is no salvation apart from the message of the gospel. It is of first importance. And if we get the gospel wrong, it doesn't matter what else we may get right. If we get the gospel wrong, it doesn't matter. Everything else is wrong. So the gospel is and it must always remain the primary message of the church because it's necessary. Secondly, the gospel is established. Right? In verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul says, I delivered of you that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and He rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. 
right? In its most succinct form, that is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and Jesus rose again. That is the message the apostles preached. That is the message the early church took. That is the message of the reformers. That is the message of historic Baptist, historic Christianity in general. That Jesus died for our sins and Jesus rose again. Now, the key part in this is that that is the message. right? We're not told to redefine the message. We're not told that there will come a day where people can't believe an idea that God would take on human flesh and down the cross for the sins of His people and stay dead for three days and rise on the third day. And since they can't believe that, you can alter it to something that would be more palatable and more acceptable to them. There, there's no indication of that. The Gospel is the established message. I mean, we don't get to change it. We don't get to do anything to alter it. Our job, it is not to make the Gospel more acceptable to a lost and a dying culture. Our job is not to make the Gospel more palatable for those who do not like God to begin with. Our job, it is to believe the Gospel and proclaim the Gospel. The Gospel message is established. And that is why it is and must always remain the primary message of the church. It is an established message from the time of the apostles to now. Nothing has changed with it. So those are the two that we covered last time. The next one is, the gospel is true. But again, we're told in verse 4 that Jesus was buried and then he rose again on the third day. Now, emphasizing Jesus was buried and rose on the third day, what Paul is trying to help us understand is Jesus really died. That he, he didn't do something else. He, he truly died. He was in the grave. And then three days later, he, he literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. But the, the resurrection of Jesus is critical to the gospel. It is critical to our salvation. In fact, it is as critical as the death of Christ on the cross. Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, his death has no real meaning. Right? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, his testimonies about claiming to be God and be the Savior of the world, they are meaningless. They, are, they, they mean nothing to us at all. The resurrection, it is the proof, the proof. That Jesus is who He claimed to be and He could do what He said He could do. Scripture explains it to us in this way. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, the first few were talking about the Gospel. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And look, notice, declared to be God, the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. So the greatest testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died as the Savior of the world and not a martyr for the cause, is the resurrection. Right? As I said, His death would have no meaning if there were no resurrection. His death wasn't unique in and of itself. The Romans crucified hundreds of thousands of people in the time that they reigned over the earth. In the time that they reigned over Judea, they crucified thousands of Jews. And just in the, in the gospel account alone, we know there were at least two other Jews that were crucified on the same day that Jesus died. So what makes Jesus unique? What makes Him stand out from everyone else that the Romans crucified on a cross in exactly the same way? It was that Jesus rose from the dead Never to die. 
That makes all the difference in the world. Now, after establishing the the gospel, the resurrection is a part of the gospel. Notice what Paul does in verse 5. He was seen. So the risen Christ was seen of Peter and of the other original apostles. After that, he was seen by 500 people of the whom the greater part are still alive, but some have died. And then he was seen by James and he was seen by other missionaries. And then last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. What Paul is saying is Jesus really did rise from the dead, that this is a true story. Right? He's saying if you if you want to know about the resurrection of Jesus, there are people right now you can go to. And you can talk to them and you can say, tell me what you saw. And they can say, we saw him die on a cross. And we saw the disciples go into hiding. And then we saw the excitement and we saw him. We didn't just see them talk about it. We actually saw the risen Christ with our own two eyes. I saw him. He was there. We all were there. We all saw the same thing. And what he's saying is the gospel is true. Now, when it comes to the vast majority of the world, the verdict is that the resurrection is not true. It did not really happen. Now, this isn't a part of the message, but just as as an aside, many people would say they are too smart to believe in a resurrection. And yet in our day, The problem isn't so much that people don't believe in supernatural spiritual things. If they did, Madame Zelda's psychic hotline wouldn't make millions of dollars every year. When Lizzie was at Bethany, on the road we took to go up to Bethany, there was a palm and tarot reader and she made money. That was her job. People believe in supernatural things. But what they can't believe in is Jesus. And it's not because that's too big of an issue. It's not because, well, come on, somebody rising from the dead is too much. Because, again, Google people rising from the dead. There are all kinds of stories. People believe everything. The reason it's Jesus is because if Jesus rose from the dead, there are demands he can make on my life because he is the son of God. So that's the issue. And people say, I just can't believe Jesus rose from the dead. They're not saying I have too scientific of a mind. Because probably they believe in ghosts and chupacabras and other things along those lines. What they can't believe in is Jesus. Because a living Christ is Lord. And he can make demands they must obey. So, many seek to discredit the idea of the resurrection. Because being able to explain away the resurrection is the critical factor in disproving Christianity. But that's how, that is ultimately how you discredit Christianity. You, you can't discredit Christianity by proving the Bible wrong. Because the longer we go, the more archaeology and things like that they find, the more they find things that, that back up the Bible. I mean, that's a, there are archaeological finds all of the time that prove the stuff of the Bible. But if they can disprove the resurrection, That's it, right? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then this for sure is wrong because this clearly says he did rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, 
then he can't be God because God can't die. Right? I mean, if Jesus is still in a grave somewhere, then all that we believe and all that we're doing, it is a waste of time. So that's that's why like at Easter, you see it at Easter. How many years have, have we seen at Easter time some new find come out that's like, well, we really think we found the grave of Jesus or something like that. Why? Why at Easter does that stuff come out? Because that's when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And if you can prove Jesus is still dead, Christianity ceases to have any relevance at all. It's not real. It's not true. So, there are all kinds of ways to explain away the resurrection. And that's really the key because very few people seek to discredit the idea that Jesus existed. There was a Jewish dude named Jesus, lived around the time the gospel said, even died at the hands of the Romans. That's, there are a few who discredit that and discount that, but those are not like what you would call mainstream type of people. Mostly people believe Jesus, there was a Jesus. He taught a lot of the things that we find in Scripture. Of course, he didn't do the miracles because that's not realistic. But he, he made the religious leaders mad, and they tricked the Romans into putting him to death, but that was the end. He, he just sort of inspired people through his example. So they got it because they, they can't accept the resurrection. So there are a lot of reasons that people give to say Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Right? One is he didn't really die. That's, a, that's the most common one that you'll hear. That what happened was he swooned and he passed out on the cross. The Romans mistook the passing out for death. They tossed him in a grave. And in the cold of the grave, he... <gasps> He resuscitated, and then he got up, and he walked out. Which would account for an empty tomb and a resurrection account. Uh, another another uh, theory is that his body was stolen. Right? And, and with this, what people say is, well, okay, the Romans or the, or the Jews, they didn't want the disciples to come say Jesus rose from the dead, so they stole the body, and that's why the tomb was empty. Or the disciples wanted to be able to say Jesus had risen from the dead, so they stole the body. Another one is that there was no, there was a mistake at the tomb, right? So Mary and the other ladies went to the tomb early in the morning. The Bible says well, it was still dark, and and they just went to the wrong tomb. They went to one that was unused, and it's like, oh, it's empty. There's nobody here. Jesus rose from the dead, and of course that would explain an empty tomb. And another was that there was no actual visit to the tomb. And with this theory, the idea is it was quite a while after the death of Jesus before the disciples began to say he rose from the dead. But their belief was based upon spiritual and not physical appearances to them. Typically, Michael the archangel was credited with being the spiritual appearances. He went to them and pretended to be Jesus. But no one actually ever went to the tomb and checked to see if that was real. So the question we have to ask, because these are the most common ones, do those account for an empty tomb? Are those actual possible answers to the empty tomb? Well, did Jesus really die? Now, just from what we know, let's just consider what we know from the crucifixion in general, from Jesus's specifically. Right? He had lost a lot of blood by the time the Bible tells us he cried and gave up the ghost in Matthew 27. Now, think about all that had happened to him prior to being crucified, right? He was beaten by the Sanhedrin council, right? They, 
He, they said he said, I am, and they got mad, and they're going to take him. So they, they beat him, and they prophesied us, Christ, who, who smote me, right? So they, he was beaten there. He was then taken to Pilate. Pilate ordered him to be flogged. Flogging was super intense. Right? It's not what you typically see on a lot of the, the Easter-type shows that they have. The way the flogging was done, people who were flogged often did not even survive it. The flogging was so brutal that many times their vital organs were exposed through their back because of how much flesh and muscle had been ripped off in the process. Um, one, one person, I can't remember who the person was, he called the people who were flogged in this manner half dead. And the reason was, even though they were alive, they were in such bad medical condition, they, could, they probably could not be saved, even if they weren't crucified. And the best medicine of the day was applied to them. They probably still would not survive. So he was flogged. Then he was beaten again by the Roman centurions this time. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They took a reed. And they began to hit him about the head and the shoulders. And then he was crucified. So the nails were driven through his hands. He was picked up. He was lifted. His shoulders would have dislocated probably. And he hung there from about 9 in the morning to just before sunset. Through all of that time, he would have done nothing but just bleed. That is a lot of time to bleed out and still be alive. And then he was stabbed in the side with a spear just to make sure he was dead. So that's an awful lot of trauma to survive. Secondly, what we know is that, his, again, his side was pierced and we're told that blood and water flowed out. Uh, according to Norman Geisler, that is an indisputable sign of death indicating the red and white blood corpuscles had separated. Right? We also know the Romans crucified people as like their job all the time. Right? So what are the chances that the Romans would think someone was dead when they were really alive? Especially when, again, we know from the Gospel of John, they were going to break his legs so that he would die quickly, and they went to him, and they didn't have to because he was already dead. They, every day of their lives, they crucified people, and they were able to make that judgment, and yet, are we to believe that they made a mistake this very one time? Jesus, we told in, in John, according to the custom of the day, he was embalmed with about 100 pounds of spices, Bandages were laid on him and the tomb was guarded. And a big stone was rolled over the mouth of the tomb. So even if he had resuscitated and had pulled off all of that embalming stuff, what are the chances someone who had suffered all of that torture would be able to roll the great big stone away and walk out unseen by the Roman guards? But if by some chance, after the beatings and the crucifixion, the hanging on the cross, the piercing of his side, he still managed to be alive, he certainly would not have appeared to be the victorious Savior of the world. He would have been pitiful, pitiful looking at that point. His appearing to the disciples on in that condition, it would not have inspired the kind of courage that is seen by them after His resurrection. It would not have made the kind of change that led them to say, we must obey God rather than men 
after being beaten and threatened not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. So, the theory Jesus didn't die, it really is not a good explanation for why the tomb is empty. So, his body was stolen. Again, the two groups, the Roman or Jewish authorities took it. Is that, was that possible? Well, I've got a lot of stuff here, but here, here's the two big issues that we have with that. One, if the Roman or the Jewish people stole the body, how quickly could they have ended Christianity? I mean, think, day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching, Jesus rose, this is the Spirit of God, and, they, and the religious leaders walk up, they get the body that they had hidden somewhere, and they bring it out in the middle of Peter's sermon. They just toss the dead body of Jesus in the floor. And he rose. Oh, well, there's nothing to it anymore. Same with the Jew, with the, the Romans. Had they done it, they could have easily stopped Christianity on first early days by just bringing and tossing out the body. But they didn't do that, did they? So one has to wonder, if they stole the body, why didn't they do that? If they'd stole the body, they would have done that because they did all that they could to stop Christianity. Another thing is in the book of Acts, when the religious leaders opposed the prophet or the apostles preaching, do you ever recall an instance, a single instance of one religious leader saying, you know Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. You know the body's hidden somewhere up in the hills. You know that's not true. Do you, do you recall even one instance of the religious leaders saying that? No, they never did. All they ever said was, stop saying this is our fault. Don't preach in Him any longer. How come they never once even tried to argue with the apostles that Jesus wasn't risen from the dead? I mean, if someone came to me, if someone comes to me and tells me Elvis is alive in Mississippi, playing piano at a bar, I'm going to say, come on, you don't really believe that, right? I mean, I'm going to tell them I really don't think that's true. And that's not even important. How much more if it was a significant issue like this? Why would they not ever say, you know it's not true? It's because deep down they knew it was true. They knew Jesus had really risen from the dead. So, the idea that the leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, took the body, it doesn't make sense. So what about the disciples? Well, let's think about the disciples prior to the resurrection. Were they particularly clever? Or did Jesus have to consistently say things to them like, do you really not even understand this now? Do you not know who I am? I mean, think about it. In John 14... His final sermon to them before, I mean, this is hours before he's killed. He says to them, do you, I've been with you all this time, do you really not know who I am? They weren't particularly clever. Were they particularly brave? No, because when Jesus was arrested, what did they all do? They all fled. They all ran away. So are we to believe that these men who were not clever and were not brave, Mounted an assault against armed Roman guards, overpowered them, rolled the stone away, stole the body, hid it somewhere, and then went out to begin to say, Jesus rose from the dead. And did all of that 
without the guards ever being able to say, Jesus, no, the apostles attacked us. They beat us down with sticks. They stole the body. And also, if they did that, let's say they did that. How do you account for how different they are after? Would would making up a story turn them from dull and cowardly men into sharp and courageous men who all, according to what we know from church history, all died badly for Jesus except the Apostle John? Would a lie they made up change them that deeply? Norman Geisler, he answers the question. He said, we would have to believe contrary to psychological fact that they died for what they knew to be false. They were transformed from cowards to courageous men in a few weeks by a deceptive plot that enabled them to turn the world upside down. It just doesn't make sense that they, done, that, they, that they stole the body and that transformed them. So the disciples stealing the body doesn't account for the adequate, for the empty tomb. What about a mistake at the tomb? They went to the wrong one. Well, we, we're running out of time, so I'll summarize. Here's the quick account. If they went to the wrong tomb, then that means when the disciples, when John and Peter went to the tomb, they went to the same wrong tomb. Because both wrong tombs apparently had grave clothes in them. Not only that, let's say they both did go to the same wrong tomb, then what needs to be done by the religious leaders to shut Christianity down? All they have to do is go to the right tomb. Drag out the body, toss it on the ground, and it's the same problem. Or no no actual visit to the tomb. And again, we run into the same issue. If, If there's no actual visit to the tomb, we do have to reject all four gospel accounts because they all say, People not only went to the tomb, they went in the tomb. But again, we have to wonder, if no one else went to the tomb, why didn't the religious leaders go to the tomb? All they had to do was go to the tomb, get the body, show it. And Christianity dies in the first century. Never advances, never does anything. So that the common answers to why the tomb was empty, they don't adequately explain what we know to be true. So we have to say, well, then that means Jesus really rose from the dead. There there are more than one skeptic, if you study like theologians, who set out to discredit Christianity and they set out to disprove the resurrection. Many of them, at the end of their time, came to the conclusion Jesus really did rise from the dead. And by believing Jesus really rose from the dead, they understood He was the Son of God. He made claims on their life and they were then saved. Jesus really did rise from the dead. That's a real fact. It really happened. The gospel is true. That's why it's always got to remain the primary message. It's not a faith event and it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It matters whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. And he did. So we can go out and we can share a message of a Savior who died on the cross and rose on the third day knowing it is an absolute fact. It really And truly happened just the way Scripture tells it. And so we can be bold and we can be confident because we are telling the truth. It truly and legitimately happened just the way the Bible describes. And then the fourth fact, the gospel is powerful. Paul says in verses 9 through 11, I'm the least of the apostles and not meet or worthy to be called an apostle 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. So what Paul says is the grace of God came to him and he began to labor and serve Jesus. He was never the same after that. The idea of labor is basically he, he labored to exhaustion and beyond. Now, of course, we're familiar with that idea of Paul. And, and what we can do is we can forget that there was a Paul before Jesus. And that we know what Paul was like before Jesus. Paul's own words. He says this. And I thank Jesus Christ Jesus my Lord who enabled me, for He counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry, who was before, right? So before he, Jesus saved him, he was a, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorance and an unbelief. And we'll just quickly hit what he says about himself there. That he was a blasphemer. Right? The Apostle Paul hated Jesus. That's what he did. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. And so he did all he could to oppose him. And part of what he did was to blaspheme the name of Jesus. Which meant he said things like Jesus was not the Messiah. He is a fake. He is a phony. It wasn't real. You're crazy for believing that. He was a blasphemer. He wasn't someone who was morally neutral about Jesus. Well, I think he was probably a good guy, but I don't know. That's not for me. That's for you. That's great. That's not how he was. He blasphemed the name and the person of Jesus in order to convince other people to turn from Jesus and keep them from believing in him. But he wasn't just a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. But he did all that he could to persecute the church of Jesus Christ, to eliminate the name of Jesus from the earth. And he went far and wide, finding Jewish people who professed faith in Jesus. He arrested them. He took them back to Jerusalem. He brought them before the Sanhedrin where they were tried for sins against the people and for religious crimes. And they were given a choice. You can deny Jesus, you can renounce Jesus, or you can go to jail, or you can die. That was what he did to people over and over and over again. In fact, at his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, why was he going to Damascus? To find Jewish believers, to drag them back to Jerusalem, to give them a choice between renouncing Christ or prison or death. And he says he did it to men and women, which is significant. Because in the day in which Paul did this, women were not seen to be able to kind of make the religious choice for themselves. They followed their husband. So if the husband and the wife both left Judaism to go to Christianity, then it was the husband's fault, but not the wife, but not Paul. Not Paul. Wives had a choice too. He brought them. They had that same choice. right? So he, he persecuted to death Christians. And he was an injurious person. Uh, Commentator William Barclay said the Greek word used there meant that Paul enjoyed the pain he inflicted upon the followers of Jesus. Now to get this, get a picture of how serious this was, what Paul was. If Paul lived in our day, Paul would have been on a terrorist watch list. Right? I mean, we know from what we know about Islam. Right? But the really hardcore people, they, well, they blaspheme the name of Jesus. He wasn't the Son of God. Do they persecute Christians? 
and stone them to death. If, if a Muslim converts to Christianity, what is, the, what is the penalty for that in a Muslim-majority country? They die. They kill them. Horribly. Painfully. Miserably. And many of the Muslim men who do that, they enjoy the pain they inflict upon the blasphemers who deny Allah and Muhammad. Paul was just like them. Paul was just like all the horror stories we read from Christian persecution in Muslim majority countries. He was one of them. And yet, Jesus saved him. And Jesus changed him. That's the kind of change the gospel can bring to someone's life. And and the gospel alone brings that kind of change. Moral reform cannot bring that kind of change. Nothing can bring this kind of change except the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is and must always remain the primary message of the church. Because there is nothing on all the earth that has the power to change lives like the gospel. Think, think about like in the days of the Reformation. And in the days of like the Spanish Inquisition. How many Spaniards converted to Catholicism because the choice was Catholicism or death? Many. On paper. How many of them converted in their heart and stayed Protestants though? And in in for real. Many. Many. Right? The church can bring the sword and we can force people to say they believe. And if you don't believe, we're going to cut off your head. We're going to put you in prison. We're going to shun your businesses. We're going to do all of these things. But forcing people to conform outwardly doesn't change their hearts. It doesn't change their lives. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the message. The gospel is the means. Change comes not through outward means or force, but from the inner transformation that comes as the gospel takes root in a person's heart and the Spirit begins to work in their lives. The message of the church must always be the gospel because that is how communities are transformed. That's how marriages are restored. That's how prodigals are brought home. That's how captives are set free from sin. That is how it happens as we preach, as we proclaim the gospel. And it takes root in their hearts. We must be devoted to the church. But to the gospel, we must be convinced of the life-changing power of the gospel. Because if we're not, we will lose the gospel. We will redefine the gospel. Or we will replace the gospel with something else. Time's up. But we must. I'm saying, many churches have replaced the gospel with a form of legalism. You come to our church. You wear these clothes. You use this particular Bible translation. We sing these kind of songs. You have these standards and these convictions. And voila, you're a Christian. But what we're finding is that many of these churches... The people are not Christian. Many pastors in those churches are molesting women and children in their churches. Many 
deacons in these churches are molesting women and children in their churches. Many horrible things are happening in these churches because the gospel isn't the primary, it's the rules. And the rules make an outward show of devotion, Paul says in Colossians, and it looks really good. But it does nothing to tame the inward sinful desires. That's what the gospel does. So the gospel must remain the message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we